Good morning, church family. It's a joy to be with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can open them with me to the passage our friend Marilyn just read, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. There's a lot uh, that Peter lays out for us in this passage. I'm excited to unpack it this morning with you. If you don't own a Bible, uh, know that there are some provided for you on the little coffee bar out here. We'd love to gift you with a copy of the scriptures, or if you forgot your Bible at home, uh, you can feel free to go grab one of those. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what God's word has for us this morning, and this is what we gather for every Sunday. Amen? Amen. We don't hear, we don't come and gather on Sundays to hear the thoughts and opinions of Daniel. We don't gather to hear the thoughts and opinions of Will or Nathan. We gather to hear from God's word. And the, the hope and purpose of hearing from God's word is so that we would be equipped for every good work. Paul writes a letter to Timothy that says, uh, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. Okay, so the goal of this time is to equip you. Right? It, the goal of the Sunday gathering and even the purpose of it is a little different than how we might think of other gatherings as we gather throughout the week or different events. Right? It's not necessarily that you come to consume or come to be entertained. Right? A, a corporate church gathering is different than gathering for a sports event or gathering for a concert show, or a gathering for a whatever it might be, right? The purpose is that it's kind of a, you're getting trained almost. It's not, hopefully you're going to hear a couple things that tickle your ears, or you'll be entertained, or you'll hear some good religious stuff. The goal is that you'd be equipped. So I hope that you guys are listening and ready this morning, because there is a lot of stuff in here that I'm excited about. Um, I saw on Facebook a post this week from a pastor friend of mine in Burien that talked about this kind of idea of how we don't want to be consumeristic. We want the church to be a training ground, an equipping time. And it said something along the lines of, in quotes, random churchgoer says, I didn't really like worship today. And then it would be like Francis Chan uh, responding to him in quotes, "Uh, that's okay, we weren't worshiping you today anyways. (laughs) And and this is kind of a mentality I think we have to guard against. that's about us, that we're supposed to be entertained or, or consume things. The, the greater the experience is based on our preference, our lightning. Uh, the goal of this time is for you to be equipped. And I pray that through this sermon, you are encouraged and equipped through God's word to submit to Jesus more and more as your King, Lord, and Savior. And that's what I hope to be covering as we look at 1 Peter 3. Uh, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 12. Uh, This passage comes right after the greeting that we looked at last week. Last week we saw Peter's reminding the elect exiles that were dispersed throughout Asia Minor, a modern-day Turkey, uh, that they were chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God, for obedience to Jesus Christ in the sanctification of the Spirit for sprinkling with his blood. We saw that was kind of a peculiar phrase. It's interesting, not something that we might use today, but it means that we were cleansed kind of once and for all by the blood of Christ, but that we are also continually cleansed by his blood and we're growing in holiness and purity. And it seems like out of summary and overflow of that, kind of the greeting, uh, he's reminding them of who they are. They are elect exiles. He bursts forth in this blessing of God, this praise of God in verse three. He blesses God, and he praises God, not, I don't think, in a monotone, uh, praise God. Blessed be God, our Father. Notice what's at the end of that sentence, an exclamation point. And as you read throughout the letter, Peter is not the guy that uses exclamation points all the time. 
In fact, when I was reading through my copy of the ESV, I didn't find a single other exclamation point in the whole letter. So Peter is not that friend that you have that uses an exclamation point every other sentence in a text or email, right? So I think that's significant. It means something. There's some weight behind this. It's meant to be kind of a call, a shout out, blessed be God. He's praising God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's calling out. He's praising God. And we can glean from this as this kind of starts off the whole passage. And actually in the original language, uh, verse 3 through 12 is one long sentence. So the beginning of verse 3 here opens the main clause. And that's the whole point. He's saying, blessed God because of these things. In other words. So the main point and principle that we can set before us this morning is that the proper response to the gospel is worship. This is, what, this is what Peter is doing. He's worshiping God, and he lists the realities and the responses to the gospel. And that's what we're looking at this morning. If you have your outline, uh, I'm not very creative sometimes in my titles, so that's what it's called. Realities and responses, uh, gospel realities and responses. So this morning we'll be looking at what are the realities of the gospel as Peter lists out, and what are the responses to the gospel. But underneath all of that is the proper response is worship of God. So, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's praising God. The word blessed means God is praiseworthy. Right? So like stadiums, cheer for athletes. Christians, cheer for God. We are praising God, blessing God. He is our hero. He is the one we sing about. He is the one who is victorious. And he says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Now, born again is an interesting term. It may be confusing if you're not familiar with the Christian faith. What does it mean to be born again? Uh, the idea of being born again means that the Holy Spirit comes, when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes into your heart and causes you to become a new person. That's what it means to be born again. God in his grace grants transformation of, a, of an individual. It's similar to how Peter writes to the church in Corinth that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. This is the idea of what born again refers to. And the clearest teaching we have in our Bible about this is in John 3. Jesus teaches, he says this very same thing. If, if you are not born again, you're not going to see the kingdom. In other words, if you're not born again, you're not, you're not mine. You're not going to see my lordship and rule and reign. I'm not your lord and savior. And there's a guy named Nicodemus who's confused by this. And he says what we might be thinking the first time we hear this phrase. Does this mean we have to go back into our mother's womb and be reborn? What are you getting out of here, Jesus? How can a man be born again? And Jesus says in John 3, verse 5, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with you, with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, you are born again, right? Yes. Who remembers the exact moment when they were born again or can explain the intricacies of how that happened? That's kind of what, is this mysterious union that's happening here. The spirit comes and goes. You don't know when or how it happens, but something happens and you're, what was dead comes to life. The spirit of God is, is put into your heart. He invades your heart and you become a new person. That's what it means to be born again. Now, some of you might have a distinct memory of your salvation moment. Others might not. Maybe you were a young child and 
you don't necessarily remember. But I one time heard a pastor say that you don't need a birth certificate to know that you're alive. That you know that you're alive by your breathing. Okay? So to be born again uh, means that you have been born of the Spirit and you once were dead, once you didn't prefer God, once God bored you, and now he is your utmost love and treasure. Once you preferred other things to God and now you, you choose and prefer God. Once you were skeptical or, or doubtful or disinterested in, in Jesus and now you love him. That's what it means to be born again. Once you were your own Savior and Lord, but now you've trusted in Christ and you are increasingly submitting all of your life to him as your Lord and Savior. In the new birth, we receive a new identity, a new relationship with God, and a new father, a new family, new brothers and sisters in Christ. This is what it means to be born again. And when it comes to being born again, Peter shows us the basis or the foundation or the source of it. Right, similar to how we looked at last week. It is all by the great mercy of God. Notice what it says in, in verse 3. According to his great mercy, he has caused you to be born again. Notice the source. And, and who's, who's the author of salvation, as the Bible says? It's God. And the basis of our salvation, the basis of being born again, is his great mercy. None of us in this room deserve to be born again. We deserve separation from God. We deserve uh, hell and death, and yet God in his mercy grants us compassion, something that he did not owe us. That's what mercy is. And I think the more that we uh, lean into this, the more we press into God's mercy, the more we reflect on the mercy of God and let it sink deep into our hearts, it's going to change the way we think, the way we talk, our attitudes and behaviors. It just will. Because when you think about the reality that I deserve separation from God, I didn't deserve anything good because I rebel, I willingly chose other things from God, everything good in your life is a gift. Our relationships are gifts. Friendships with members of this church is a gift. This church is a gift. Our families are gifts. Our job is a gift. Our home is a gift. Your next breath is a gift. So the more we let this sink into our heart, it's going to change us. I think it would make us a people who complain less, wouldn't it? When we realize we don't deserve anything, we're not entitled to anything. Our entitlement in regards to comfort, sleep, money, recognition, success, our coveting and jealousy and envy of what others have would diminish, would progressively be killed. So I pray that our lives would demonstrate the reality that it's all according to the great mercy of God. We're going to sing a song here, uh, the second set of our songs called uh, Your Mercy that I love. It, it captures us so well. So it says, uh, he has caused us to be born again. No one else, it's God's responsibility to be born again. And he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now, hope in the Bible does not refer to wishful thinking. Hope in the Bible does not refer to, oh, I hope I get a new iPad for Christmas. Okay, I hope Stephanie's making nachos for lunch today. It's not wishful thinking. Hope in the Bible is confident assurance that it will happen based on the promises of God. Amen. So hope in the Bible is it's based on truth, it's based on facts, it's based on God. And Christians are born again to a living hope. Certain, it's living, it's not dead. Once it was dead. You were dead in your former ignorance, your former self, uh, dead hope. Now you've been born again to a living hope, an undying hope, a permanent hope through 
what Peter says there, the resurrection of Jesus. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And here, Peter is referring to that when someone is born again, we have been united with Christ. Therefore, our bodies and our former self was crucified with Christ on the cross. And just as Jesus raised from the dead, we too have been united with him raising from the dead, walking in newness of life. Okay, Peter captured, or excuse me, Paul captures this in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. He records a similar thing in Romans 6. He says, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So in other words, without the resurrection, there's no hope. But through the resurrection, we have been born again to a living hope because we have been united with Christ in being born again. Amen? So in summary, according to the great mercy of God, God causes people to, number one, be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. And as we see in verse 4, number 2, a living, or a inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Notice those three words that Peter uses to describe our inheritance. It's secure. It's not going anywhere. It's imperishable. It won't be destroyed. It's not going to disappear. It's not going to be spent before we get it. Right? Our earthly fathers, our earthly parents, our earthly grandparents might have promised an inheritance to us, but we don't know if we're going to get it. We don't know what the stock market is going to do if it's involved in the stocks. We don't know if our parents are going to go off their rockers and spend our inheritance. Maybe we don't even have an inheritance, and we can't even hope in that. But in Christ, we have an inheritance that is secure. It's imperishable. It's not going anywhere. It's not going to be destroyed. Number two, it's undefiled. There's no impurity. There's no defect. It's not going to go wrong. There's no sinfulness in it. And three, it's unfading. We're not going to get bored of it. We're not going to lose interest in it. It's not going to be ruined or fade, dwindle, decline, fail, won't be destroyed. Unfading. That's awesome when you think about our inheritance. Amen? Amen. Now, if someone were to walk up to you and say, you know, through a genetic DNA test, you have been found to be the long-lost relative of this royal family, and we have an inheritance for you that is infinitely valuable. It's not going to go anywhere. It's kept in a secure place. It's for you. Would that change the, your present reality the way you lived? You betcha, right? That's good news. That's great news. How much more so would it be when we think about this reality that God has an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance kept in heaven for us? That should change the way we live, knowing we have an inheritance coming that's not going anywhere. We don't drive by Marine View Drive and get jealous over these million-dollar homes on the water while we're sitting in our split-level home in middle-class Des Moines. We have something far greater to look forward to. We have a hope that is far more secure than anything in this world. That changes the way we live. That gives us hope. That is living hope. And up to this point, you think, wow, this is sweet. 
Okay, been born again according to his mercy, not anything I did. God did it through Jesus, through his resurrection, sent his spirit into my life. He caused me to be born again. He's keeping this inheritance for me. But then you think about yourself and you realize, how many times have I turned turn my back on God this week? I know this inheritance is kept from me, but am I going to be faithful to God? I mean, I know I can mess this thing up. I'll probably do it later this afternoon. I know how sinful and, and prone to wander I am. Can our inheritance be lost because of us, essentially? No, right? That's what Peter says. Look at the dynamic that it says in, in verse uh, four and five. So Peter says, you've been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. So God is keeping this inheritance for you. And verse five, who by God's power, so who are referring to those who are born again, are being kept or being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You see the dynamic that's happening here? So the inheritance is being kept in heaven for you and you're being kept for the inheritance by God. God is guarding our inheritance in heaven and God is guarding us for our inheritance in heaven. That's awesome. Okay, uh, a guy by the name of Juan Sanchez in his commentary called First Peter for You says, the greatest threat to perseverance is unbelief. If we lose faith, then we will not receive our reward. But Peter promises us that God will guard us by his power through faith. In other words, while we must continue in faith to receive our future salvation, Peter reminds us that no matter how hard life may become, God sustains our faith by his power. Being guarded for salvation, our faith is being guarded by God through his power. That word guarded refers to kind of a military, watchful, eyes on, not going anywhere. I'm watching you. That's what God is doing. That's how he's sustaining us through his power. So the inheritance is being kept in heaven by God for his children, and God is keeping his children for the inheritance. Those are the realities of the gospel. And Peter continues in verse 6 saying, In this, in these realities, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, remember, as we looked at the context last week in First Peter, we saw that the Early Christians were experiencing suffering, social ostracization. Uh, they were facing trials of different kinds. And what's interesting to me as I was studying through this is that phrase, if necessary. You see that in verse 6? Though now, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Peter is teaching us in this phrase that who is the one who is deciding who's necessary, if it's necessary? Us? unknown circumstances beyond God's control. It's God himself. God is the one who deems necessary. He's teaching us that suffering, griefs, trials are in the will of God. He is the one who deems necessary. And suffering, as we see in the following verses in the Christian life, is God's will for his people. It's how he refines, purifies, and reveals genuine faith. Do you have faith if it's never tested? And God in his goodness and his wise purposes will remove things in our life. 
He'll bring trials. He'll strip away comforts and pleasures, things that we put our hope in to purify our faith. Many of you know early in the life of our church, we went, some diff- we went through some difficult times. I went through some difficult, the leadership of the church went through some difficult stuff. And in the moment, I was discouraged. I was, I, Will can testify to that. I didn't take it the best way at times. But looking back, I'm incredibly thankful to God for what he had revealed and showed and purified my faith through it. That I'm not supposed to put my faith in people. I'm not putting my hope in the success of a church plant, how well things are, the projection of growth that's happening. My hope is to be found in God, and he ultimately never disappoints, never fails, and he was stripping me of myself to purify my faith. Praise God for his goodness in that. I know he wants to do the same and has done the same in your life. If you have a good life, a cush life, you have a nice home, a well-stocked fridge, a good family, loving children, a rock-solid marriage, your dream job, all the toys you desire, do you have to trust and find joy in God? You do, but how easy it is to wander and to put your trust in other things. When God brings cancer and health problems and difficult times in marriage and your kids wander from faith or don't believe, you have to trust God. He's pulling away things that we can lean on and put our hope in. God uses these trials to create a dependence upon him. And and Peter describes that when we are grieved, meaning it's going to happen. He doesn't diminish grief. He doesn't pretend like it's not there. Peter doesn't say, uh, put a smile on and pretend like nothing's wrong. You have been grieved by various trials. Peter doesn't pretend the elect exiles in Asia Minor haven't experienced grief. He doesn't try to diminish it. I love that about it. He says, in this, you rejoice. He reminds them that you don't have to decide, am I going to be happy all the time or sad all the time? Struggle between the two. He says, you have a joy and grief is entering into that joy. The false gospel of the health and prosperity that God just, you should always be happy. You'll never experience trials. He's always going to bless you with perfect health. That that if he loves you, that's what's going to happen. That's a false gospel. It's just not true. It's not how it works. Yeah. Joy in the Bible is much more complex and grief enters into that joy. That's why the Bible says we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Joy enter, in, sorrow, excuse me, sorrow enters into the joy. So in the life of our church, we don't have to fake or avoid or pretend we don't experience sorrows. We smile while we cry. We have joy in God that is a deep-seated belief that God is good and he has good purposes for us. He is sovereign. We may have joy through grief. We may be sorrowful, but we are joyful. And notice the reward toward the end of verse 7. So, the reason that all this is happening, the tested genuineness of your faith, as we talked about, that God is purifying us through trials and suffering, may result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I, I, think, I like to think that I teach the Bible in a God-centered way, that at the Mountain Church, we are very God-centered. We are not man-centered. We sing songs about God and about Jesus. And I realize what I'm about to say might 
contradict that. But as we think about this verse, who is being praised? Who is receiving honor and glory? God's people from Jesus. I've never thought about that before this week. Honestly, that that made me a little uncomfortable at first. It's like, wait, we're going to be praising God and and we're going to be giving him honor and glory in heaven. And yes, that's true. That's a message and, and truth in the Bible that we can trace all the way through. But there is also reality of the Bible that we will be glorified. We will receive honor and praise from God. You think I'm crazy? 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Paul writes to the church in Corinth that after the judgment of Christ, when he returns, the saints will receive praise from God. He says, each one will receive their commendation. Now, the other uh, Bible translations of the NIV or the New American Standard Bible translate that word commendation as praise. In other words, Christians are going to receive praise from God. What's that going to look like? No idea. But man, that's encouraging. That's good news. God will praise Christ-honoring faith in his people. What are the responses to the gospel? If those are the realities, those are the good news, living hope, born again, inheritance, undefiled, imperishable, unfading. We're going to receive praise through our steadfastness and faith that God is holding us. What are the responses to the gospel that we see in this passage? Responses to the gospel. Number one, listed out five there that I find in the passage. Number one, rejoicing in it. This was a point of conviction for me this week. When when Peter says, in this, you rejoice. Now, it's not a command, but he's describing the reality of the early Christians. And I had, a good, I had to take a good look at my life. Do I rejoice in the gospel? And this past week, I, I was convicted about that. What do, what do I rejoice in? What do you rejoice in? Do you wake up in the morning and thank God for the gospel? Is it on your mind? Are you rejoicing in it? Do you sing songs? Does it just burst forth in song? Does it lead you to want to get into God's word? What do you rejoice in? Does the gospel overflow in, in words of praise of God and, and service towards others? Sending encouraging texts to your brothers and sisters in the church. Would our coworkers, our neighbors, or those around us describe us as rejoicing in the gospel? Do we model that for them? If someone were to ask you, by a random stranger comes up to you and asks you, who do you love? What would your response be? Excuse me, my, skip, my note skipped ahead there. I jumped ahead. But anyways, rejoicing in the gospel. Do we rejoice in the gospel? Are you known as being a good person? You're known by you don't swear, you don't lie, goody two-shoes, morally good. Are you known by someone who rejoices in the gospel? Do you rejoice in the gospel when you're waking up to go to the bathroom because you have the flu? Do you regularly thank and praise God for the gospel in your prayers? Number two, another response we see in the passage is love for Jesus. Peter says in verse eight, though you have not seen him, you love him. So we know this book was, this letter was written by Peter who walked with Jesus for three years. He was a part of the inner circle. He saw Jesus. He touched him. He knew his mannerisms. He knew what he looked like. He knew what kind of facial hair he had, how he liked to keep his hair. 
he saw Jesus. And he's telling and reminding, just like the original audience of this letter, just like us, we haven't seen Jesus' face. If we were given a, a picture of Jesus from a crowd, could we point him out? No. Yet we love him. Response to the gospel is that we love Jesus. Jesus is utmost in our affections. Jesus is the one we love the most. We know, though, if you've been a Christian for a period of time or you're familiar with the church, that it's one thing to say you love Jesus. It's another to love Jesus, right? There's many people who say they love God, they love Jesus. Do we love Jesus? Right? I can't say I love my wife, Stephanie, and never want to spend time with her. I can't say I love Stephanie and not talk with her, not want to learn about her. I, I can't say I love Stephanie and never serve her, never encourage her, never affirm her, never sacrifice for her, never give her gifts. So what does it practically look like to love Jesus? In a time and culture in which love is, is thrown out, like, you know, I, I love Jesus just like I love pizza. We're so confused on what love is. What does it practically mean to love Jesus? This is not an exhaustive list, but we'll go back to what we looked at in the core values. What does it look like? What does it look like to love Jesus? These are some things that I'll lay before you. I think it looks like spending daily time in his word, seeking his face and wanting to know him. It looks like soaking in God's word, giving the study to God's word first fruit in your energy, your time, your mind. It looks like increasingly submitting all of your life to his lordship and authority, reading God's word and seeking to obey what it says, not store up knowledge for yourself. It looks like regular financial giving to his bride, the church, that is sacrificial, voluntary, and joyful. It looks like reading books throughout the year about Jesus, about the gospel, about Christian living, biblical theology, etc. Looks like regular conversations with Jesus in prayer and about Jesus in discipleship. Looks like Jesus is not a part of your life, he's your life, so you build relationships that are centered on it. You love Jesus and you want people to meet him. I love my wife, I love my two daughters. When I meet someone new that I'm introducing myself to, I want to introduce them to the people that I love. I want to introduce them to my wife, my daughters. This should be our reality when it comes to Jesus. We really love people. We love Jesus. We want them to meet Jesus. Amen. Right? <laughs> Loving Jesus means you reserve time in your schedules for the things Jesus loves. You are not the boss and Lord of your schedule. Jesus is. Looks like being committed to his bride, the church, gathering regularly together, not forsaking gathering with believers on Sundays or in smaller gospel communities throughout the week. Not trying to fit Jesus in, but you're scheduling things around Jesus and the things that he loves and that he has called us to. This is a, a little bit of what it means to love Jesus. So those who are born again, number one, rejoice in the gospel. Number two, they love Jesus. And number three, they believe in Jesus. Number, verse eight again, though you do not see him, you believe in him. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. So though we have not physically seen Jesus, we have faith in him. We believe in him. This looks like ultimately holding to his word above all things. Believing that 
Jesus' words in the scriptures are ultimate truth, final authority, and you're not going to disagree with him. Say, I, I feel like this is a little, this is better. I say, what does God's word say? The fourth response we see in the passage is rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Verse 8, you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with joy, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Another way to describe rejoice is to exalt. It means to feel joy, to feel extreme happiness. To rejoice in Christ is to delight in him. To rejoice in him, to be glad in him, to be happy in him with indescribable joy. You can't put words to it. It's inexpressible. It defines description. It's filled with glory, especially at our eternal salvation. Again, going back to the reality that we know we're going to be glorified. That is the source and basis of our hope. Nothing is able to remove our joy because it's eternally secure in God. How would you rank your joy this morning? Is your joy inexpressible? You filled with joy. When God's words command us to rejoice, what this means practically is that our emotions, our affections matter. The sense of the word joy in this passage means the emotion of great happiness and pleasure. So what this means is that the Christian life, is, it's just not okay for us to believe the right things and to do the right things. We have to feel the right way. We don't sing songs with hearts that are disengaged. We don't think to ourselves, well, I'm, just because I'm mouthing the words and I'm going to go throughout the week and do the right things, that I'm worshiping God. Emotions matter. Okay, to not find joy in who is ultimately joyful and glorious is sinful. And, and sometimes in our camp of, of evangelical Christianity where we're concerned about good doctrine and, and right belief, we can't miss this one. We can't miss disconnecting our hearts from our heads and our hands. We are to find joy in what is ultimately joyful and joyous and receive joy from it. We are to be happy in what is ultimately uh, deserves responses of the greatest happiness. This means we want to engage our hearts when we study God's word. We want to engage our hearts when we're listening to sermons. We want to engage our hearts when we're singing songs to God. And I know we all have different ways of expressing uh, our praise, of expressing ourselves in worship. Some of us are not going to go crazy and, and jump up and down and dance. But in our hearts, it should overflow in joy. Right? People can normally tell when you're happy or not. Okay, and I'm going to be honest. Sometimes when we're up here and we're singing, and, and even as I'm preaching, sometimes our, it seems to me, from my perspective, that our hearts can be disengaged from this. Can we just be real talk? Our hearts and our emotions, our affections matter. Our hearts must be engaged. 
Sometimes this looks like we have to sort of speak to our heart and wake it up. Or like imagine taking your heart out of sight of yourself, putting it in front of the Bible and saying, all right, heart, wake up, feel this. This is God's word. I am gathering with God's church. I am singing to Jesus, the most glorious, perfect being. There's nothing better than that. And yet my heart is cold at times. My heart rejoices in other things. I get happy about meaningless, trivial things. I come and preach. I come and gather with the church. My heart's disengaged. What is wrong with me? We need to wake up our hearts. We need to preach to our hearts. We need to engage our hearts. Amen? Emotions matter. Number five, finally, fifth response to the gospel we see in the passage is those who are born again respond to the gospel by proclaiming the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is wrapped up in the final section of the passage in verses 10 through 12 when Peter writes to them uh, that they are living a privileged time. They have a privileged salvation. It's pretty cool what Peter uh, brings to mind here. It says, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was yours, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ. Verse 12, Peter also goes on to say that these things, that the angels from heaven are longing to look. The word means kind of stooped over, they're marveling, they're wondering at how God is working out his redemption among his people. So this is a privileged time that we live in, that the prophets of old prophesied, they were longing, they were anticipating the time in which these prophecies about the sufferings of Christ, the redemption of uh, the world that would happen through God would happen in Christ. Because we're after Christ, we live in a privileged time. Those prophets, they were longing forward to that time. They were looking forward to it. It says that they were, they were serving us. They weren't serving themselves. These promises that were sought to be fulfilled in Christ. It's revealed now, and we know it. And we have a privileged salvation. The angels are longing to look into it. They're worshiping God through the salvation of humanity. That's sweet. Angels are longing to look at these things, are marveling and wondering at the redemption of God that he's worked out in Christ. And this is the hope, another hope that Peter is reminding of them of, their privileged time in history, their privileged salvation that we received in Christ. But what we want to see in verse 12 as we respond to the gospel is that the elect exiles heard these things because they were announced by the gospel, through the gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how these things came about. These things were announced from someone who proclaimed the gospel to them. This is how you respond to the gospel. We proclaim it to others. This passage is kind of setting up what Peter's going to get at in chapter 2 when he says, now just as you've heard about the salvation, you're to proclaim it to everyone. So he's getting at later. All of God's people have a responsibility to proclaim God's word. It also sets up what he says in 1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. So when someone's asked you, why are you like this? What hope do you have? What are you going to say? How are you going to respond? Hope you talk about the realities of the gospel. That's what Peter's getting at here. But the gospel, when we see this principle here, is always meant to transform. It's always meant to change us from the inside out, and it's always meant to overflow in sharing it. So as we know that we've studied through and reflect upon the gospel, that according to God's great mercy, we have been born again to a living hope, to an inheritance. 
that as we've been born again to an inheritance kept in heaven for us, that God is keeping us for through his power by faith, that we respond to the gospel by rejoicing in it. I pray that's what we would do now as we sing. We would rejoice in the gospel. Be evident that we would love Jesus, that we would believe Jesus, that we would be filled with inexpressible joy that overflows in sharing Jesus in word and deed, that we're going to be looking for ways of doing that this week, sharing Jesus in word and deed. As we respond to the gospel, we're sharing Jesus with others. So I I pray that we will worship now through song and that throughout the week, these things will come to mind, that the spirit will bring these things to mind and he will give us opportunities to share God's love in word and deed. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.